Hebrews chapter 10 is where we're going to be this morning. And as you're still maybe turning there, I want to I start out this morning by asking you a question like I so often do to get a sermon started, just to kind of get you thinking about what we're going to be talking about. Have you ever had a moment in your life when you recognize that you just experienced something that was exponentially better than before? Have you ever had one of those moments where you realize, oh, what I just tasted, what I just experienced, what I just heard, where I just went, who I just met was much different than before and it has changed me as a result. I think there comes a time in each and every one of our lives where we realize, oh, this is way better than what I was used to. And now I can't go back to what I used to be accustomed to. You know, for me, I, you know, I've got many areas like this in my life. In fact, when I was 21, my wife and I, we moved to Boise, Idaho. It was our very first ministry. It was my first move across the country. I'm a Midwestern kid. She's a, she's a preacher's kid from the South in Texas. And uh, neither of us had really experienced much culture outside of the, the places where we grew up. And so we both moved out West and we realized once we got there, oh, there's a different way of living than what we're used to in the South and in the Midwest. And we loved it. It felt at the time like an extreme upgrade from what we were used to from our childhood. It's not to say that it was better, but at the time it felt like an upgrade. It felt better. Maybe you've Maybe you've moved to a different part of the country and you realize, oh, this is the way it's supposed to be. Or this lifestyle is just much more fitting for what I'm looking for and what I'm interested in. I know for me, another area of life where I've noticed these, I guess, upgrades in life has been in the area of food. I grew up, I'm a huge cheesecake fan. If anybody ever wants to make me a cheesecake, you will become immediately my best friend, okay? I love cheesecake, but growing up, my mom used to make these, I guess you call them a cheesecake out of a box. Like she would make them from those jello boxes. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Like, and they were great. Like that's all I knew growing up. She would make these like puffy cheesecakes that were kind of light. And then she'd put cherries on top of them. And I loved them. But then in my mid twenties, for the very first time, I went to the cheesecake factory and I had a New York style cheesecake. And all of a sudden it's like everything in life went from black and white to full color. It was like my eyes had been opened to the glories of New York style cheesecake. And there was no going back to the old way. You know, I, uh, I've noticed this as well. And technological advances. You know, we talked about smartphones earlier and just all these little gadgets that we have. And all of a sudden there's QR codes and you're like, what's a QR code? And you know, my, my phone has a camera. I didn't even know that kind of thing. And I can, I can scan something and it'll take me to the internet. Like it's crazy how much more convenient technology has made our lives in some way. But I remember one technological advance for me in the early nineties was when I went from that cassette tape to the CD player. Do you guys remember that? That first time that you listened to a CD and how much clearer the music was and you didn't have to fast forward from song to song. You could skip tracks. It was just like the world had gotten so much better in an instant. And I remember 
probably being a freshman in high school, I can still remember to this day sitting in my dad's recliner in our living room and I had just gotten this CD player for Christmas and I'm listening, I'm just like, I'm drowning out all the distractions of the world and I'm listening to Michael W. Smith on my CD player and I'm like, this is the way it was supposed to sound. We've all had those experiences in life where we've experienced that upgrade and we can't go back to what was just okay. But once your eyes have been opened to better, it's hard to, it's hard to go backwards. It's hard to revert. But this is where we find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 10. Okay. I'm kind of setting up what we're going to be talking about. The writer of this epistle, he had just spent several chapters expressing how Christ was a better sacrifice and how he was a better high priest. He's, he's, he's letting us in on how Jesus is better in every way. And how the old covenant was just okay, but this new covenant, this new way of pleasing God, this new way of having relationship with God through Jesus Christ, it was so much better. But the Christians in this moment, in this season of life, because of persecution, because of Judaizers, because of the temptations of the world in the old way, they were being constantly drawn back to the old covenant. And they were having to struggle to continue to follow Christ in the new covenant. And so the author of Hebrews, he writes this letter that we're going to look into this morning, explaining how Jesus is better in every way, how he was better than the law. Because the law was flawed. It was not meant to be um, the way that it was always going to be in relationship with God. And I want to remember this morning, in this moment, I want to remember why Jesus is better in every way than the old covenant. Why we show up to church on a Sunday morning and we worship him. Why we lift up his name. Why we don't go back to trying to, 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 uh, to, to please God with our works and our good efforts. Jesus is in is better in every way, certainly, than the law. You know, coming up in just a couple of weeks, September 24th and 25th, maybe you know this, maybe it's on your calendar, is the Jewish Day of Atonement. They call it Yom Kippur. If you have a smartphone and you have an Apple phone, I can tell you that's probably pre-marked on your calendar. This is the Day of Atonement for the Jews. This is a high holy day where the Jews solemnly remember their sins from the previous year. And the high priest, the high priest of Israel goes into the temple and offers a sacrifice on behalf of the nation and on behalf of the sins of the people from the previous year. But the problem is this, is that the blood of rams and the blood of bulls and the blood of goats was never meant to be the ultimate solution. It was never meant to be the permanent solution. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4 tells us this. This is, this is the writer of Hebrews saying, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So Jesus comes along and he offers himself up as a sacrifice for our sins. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His sacrifice on the cross, if we remember, we reflect back, undid an entire system of sacrificial worship. He was the sufficient sacrifice once and for all for the sins of men. So I'm kind of giving you a little bit of theology this morning. From that moment on, when Jesus laid down his life as the, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, there was no longer a need for a priest to go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. There was no longer a need for a priest to intervene for the people and to atone for their national sins. There was no longer a need for a priest 
to release a goat, a scapegoat, into the wilderness, signifying that the sins of the people were being carried away. All of these things were done away with because Jesus had come, and Jesus was better, and he fulfilled the entire law. A better way had come, and there was no going back to the okay of the old ways. This morning at the end of the service, we're going to sing a song that many of you know, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus did everything that it took in order to pay for our sin debt. He was falsely accused. He was arrested. He was put on trial. He was beaten within an inch of death. His flesh was ripped open to the point where Scripture says he barely looked like a man. He was spit upon. They placed a crown of thorns on his brow and pressed it down until he bled. He was forced to carry his own torture device through the city streets. He was nailed to a cross. He hung naked and ashamed in front of the public. And he was pierced through his sides. There is nothing that Jesus did not do. And there was nothing more that he need to do in order to give us access to the holy presence of God. Amen. He has done it all. Jesus paid it all. He is and was a better way. And we now have access into the presence of God because of his sacrifice, because of his blood, which takes us to Hebrews chapter 10. Starting in verse 19 this morning, in light of all of that, we're going to read this word, therefore, okay? So in light of everything I just shared with you, the writer of Hebrews says this, therefore, brothers, because of that, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, we're going to stop there understanding that we can boldly enter into the throne of God, into the presence of God, into the holiness of God because of the blood of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. Imagine how ludicrous this must have sounded 2,000 years ago. Understand that no average person would have ever considered going into the holy presence of God. It wasn't even an option 2,000 years ago under the old covenant. Think about what this must have been like for a high priest. One day a year on the Day of Atonement, they were permitted to go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. And if that priest did not follow every rule, and you know if he didn't cross every T and dot every I and do it just right, if he, if he had sin in his life, if there was rebellion in his heart, if he didn't follow the law and the rules that were established in the book of Moses then there was a potential that the high priest could die. It was a very big deal to enter into the Holy of Holies. And a high priest did that every year, one day a year, at the risk of his own death. Because people we know in the Old Testament, when they didn't respect God's ways, especially when it came to the ark or the mercy seat of God, people were struck down and they were killed. So on the Day of Atonement, this was the harsh reality for a high priest. In fact, tradition tells us, I don't know that we see this in scripture necessarily, but tradition tells us that when a high priest would go into the Holy of Holies that one day of the year and offer that sacrifice, it was such a fearful and dreadful thing. And they were so afraid that they might be struck down by God's holiness 
that they would tie a rope around their ankle and they would put bells at the bottom of their tunics or their robes. And they would go into the Holy of Holies and the other priests might be out in the temple and they would be listening. And if those bells ever stopped ringing, that meant that the high priest had stopped moving and God may have struck him dead. And if he was struck dead, the only way to get him out was to take that rope and drag him out of the Holy of Holies. This was what the reality was for the priests and certainly the high priests in the temple system. I can't imagine that any priest ever walked into that place boldly and with confidence. They did it with fear and much trembling. But here is God saying to us today, we can boldly approach his throne. We can draw near to him because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, because of this new covenant of Jesus's blood. Let's look at verse 22. I want to read down through verse 25. And we're going to hang out here. This is going to be where we're going to kind of focus on over the next 20 minutes or so. It says this, in light of all of that, again, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So did you guys see the spiritual salad that we just read? Did you see that? It's a spiritual salad because there's all kinds of let us, okay? Cheap joke, come on, give me something. Come on, I'm just trying to keep you awake here. There's all kinds of lettuce, lettuce salad, you know, whatever. All right. So what we see is we see a concept being repeated over and over again in this passage. And what that tells us today as the readers of God's word is that when you see repetition in God's word, that means pay attention because God is trying to tell you something that's extremely important to him. And so he says, let us, he talks about let us over and over, let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider how to stir one another up. These are the good works that we should be participating in as a church, as a body of believers. These are the things that we ought to do. But here's what I love down in verse 25. All of these things that we ought to do are really kind of motivated by the one thing that we ought not to do. Where he says, let us not neglect to meet together, as is the manner of some. You see, understand this, the church is an ecclesia. The Greek word for church in the New Testament is ecclesia. And what that means is it's a called out assembly. You are a called out assembly, called out from the world, specific, distinct, set apart from the rest of the world. We are called out to gather together. And so an assembly by nature does what? It assembles. It gathers It unites under a common bond. It understands the value of oneness. It understands that, man, I am stronger. We is stronger than me. You know what I'm saying? Like, it understands that we need to invade each other's lives. And in order to live significance, in order to carry out a a commission or a dream or an agenda, we need each other and we need to gather together under the same banner We is a very important concept, certainly much more than me 
in Christianity. And I know I'm preaching to the crowd this morning, right? Like I'm preaching to the choir. You're the choir because you're all here. You understand the importance of gathering together. Otherwise, you probably would forsake this moment. You would stay at home, sleep in, get ready for the Browns to play this afternoon, whatever you got to do to prepare for that. But you're like, no, I'm here. I'm not forsaking the opportunity to gather together with other people who have been called out to this church just like I have. So I get that I'm preaching to the choir, but let us never forget the value of what comes from us being together on a regular basis. You know, D.L. Moody, he once said this to his church. He said, church attendance is as vital to a disciple as the transfusion of rich, healthy blood is to a sick person. This is so important, what we do on Sunday mornings. It's so important that we gather, that we assemble together. You know, the church is God's primary vehicle to drive spiritual health, to drive our discipleship, to give us support, to offer us counsel, and bring us encouragement from one another. And in our generation, in our context, the way we, the way we gather, what we consider an ecclesia is Crossroads Church. This is our assembly. This is our local body. This is our, our, our faith family. And I, I think that as a faith family, we have to understand that Jesus did whatever it took in order to secure our, our spiritual freedom, in order to purchase our pardon. He did whatever it took in order to reconcile us to God. And so what does he say in response to that? Let us do these things. So we should do whatever it takes to live out what Christ commands of us. And a big part of what he commands of us is to gather together. He says, let us accomplish these things. This is where we get into our notes this morning, if you have your program. Number one, through community, through gathering together, we help each other flourish in faith. This is one of the things that we do. We flourish in faith when we gather. Verse 22, reading it again, says this, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with, uh, our bodies washed with pure water. Folks, do you want to thrive in your faith? Do you not just want to survive? Do you want to actually flourish in your walk with the Lord? then you need a church to be attached to. Because no man is an island unto himself. God created us to flourish in the confines of community. And as a communities pastor, I know I'm the campus pastor here, but I carry kind of dual roles at Crossroads Church. So I I consider myself a, a campus pastor for sure, but I'm also a communities pastor. And the reason that I get up in front of you three times a year and I push those catalogs and I tell you to get into a group and I say, man, life is just better lived in groups. Life change happens in groups. The reason I get up here and I promote that and I push you so hard is because I firmly believe and the difference that biblical community makes in our lives. In fact, I would go so far as to say this. You cannot grow spiritually unless you're connected relationally. We need the relationships of others in order to grow into all who Christ has called us to become. You need the church to thrive and to flourish in your faith. There's there's a lot of... As I kind of look around at at our world that forsakes the church, that says, man, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. I love Jesus, but I don't like his bride. You know, there's a lot of people that claim Christianity that want nothing to do with the body of Christ. I believe there's a lot of spiritually malnutritioned Christians, but it's not because 
they don't know God's word. It's because they don't have a platform or a context in which to live out God's word in. They don't have a community. They don't have a fellowship. They don't have an ecclesia. You show me a Christian without a church, and I'll show you an unhealthy disciple. I believe that, folks. And I know that's a, that's a hard statement because it's easy to look around and say, oh, man, I know this person and that person. They just don't go to church, but they seem to love Jesus. I'm not saying you can't love Jesus. I'm saying you're not going to thrive. You're not going to be all that Christ has called you to be. You're not going to be completely spiritually healthy and growing unless you have a, a faith family, a church family. And the church, the first church in Jerusalem, they believed so much in this that they gathered every day. They gathered daily and they broke into God's word together. They prayed for one another. They sacrificed for one another. They broke bread together. They knew the importance of gathering and fellowship, not just on a Sunday morning, but every day. And even though you may not feel different from one week to the next, like maybe you've been coming to church for months and months, and you may not feel different this afternoon than you did this morning, but I promise you over the course of time, it will have a lasting impact on your life. In fact, I want to give you a couple of sub points here about what community does. Community strengthens your assurance. It strengthens your assurance. Galatians chapter six. Let me read this to you. Galatians chapter six, verses one and two. It says this, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. When we live life outside of the fellowship of other believers, it's easy to fall into the trap of deception. It's easy to fall into the trap of guilt and um, discouragement and doubt and sin and shame because the enemy loves to use isolation in order to attack us. He loves to pull us away from the strength of the body and bury us in shame because when do most of us sin? We don't usually sin out in public, do we? We don't usually sin on Sunday mornings when we're gathered together as a church. Most of us, when we give into temptation, it's usually when we have found ourselves separated from other believers. It's usually when we are in private. It's usually in the darkness and the isolation of life. We need each other and it strengthens our assurance. When you do life in community with other people, man, it restores you when you slip up. And we all slip up. We all tend to sin. And we need somebody talking and speaking into our lives to restore us. We all grow weary in the fight. We all grow weary in well-doing. It's easy to get worn down by the world and wondering if we're really making a difference in this life. And if this, if this uh, lifestyle that we've subscribed to of following Jesus, is it really worth it? We need other Christians to bear that burden with us and to carry us when we're weak. So community strengthens your assurance, but community also, next blanks, cleanses your conscience. It cleanses your conscience. What we just read in Hebrews, it says that we draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now we know that our bodies being washed with pure water is, is likely a reference to baptism. It's a believer's baptism and it's a, it's a, it's a picture of our new birth, our new life in Jesus Christ. Friends, there are two ordinances that Christ commanded the church to practice on a regular basis. The first being baptism, but the other being the Lord's Supper or communion. 
When we gather together for communion, and ironically, we're going to do that next week, so I want you to come prayed up, I want you to come confessed up, I want you to come prepared to um, reflect upon the sacrifice that Jesus made for us when his blood was shed. It's a moment for us to reflect upon what Jesus did for us when he shed his blood. It's a moment for us to do that together, and there is power when we reflect upon Jesus in community. There's power in that, and it cleanses our conscience. And when you're baptized, the other ordinance, that's, that's basically us making a declaration in community that we have died to sin, that, that we are no longer um, uh, you know, living in condemnation. We're no longer living in guilt. We're no longer living in shame because we are a new creation. And when that person goes into the water and they come back up out of the water, that is their public proclamation to the community that they are believers just like you. It cleanses our conscience. Folks, when I'm separated from Christian community, I tend to flounder. When I'm connected, I tend to flourish. Number two, the second thing that we should be doing is actually what we should know is that through community, we help each other hold on to hope. We help each other hold on to hope. Verse 23, the first let us was let us draw near. The second one in verse 23 is let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. The second hold on or the second let us is let us hold fast. You know, when I was, when I was in my early 20s, I was a young youth pastor in Idaho and we took our first youth group to summer camp. And for a brand new youth group that was still young, that still didn't have a lot of trust built up, going to camp was an extremely beneficial experience. But one of the things I decided to do when we were at camp is I wanted them to go to the high ropes course. Because I knew that this would be a bonding experience where they had to work together as a team and encourage one another. And on the other side of that high ropes course experience that they would, they would feel more connected to one another. They would make memories together. And so there was this one, this, this one course in particular, uh, at the camp that we went to had a high ropes challenge called, um, it was called the leap of faith. And in order to conquer it, you had to climb up a, a telephone pole that was in the ground 30 feet up in the air. By the time you get to the top, you have to get on top of the telephone pole and all that is holding you is a rope that is harnessing you. You have to stand on top of this telephone pole and you have to jump out and grab this metal ring and hang on to it. Now, when you hear that, it sounds a little scary. And to me, when I was standing on the ground watching these teenagers climb up, I think to myself, this doesn't look that difficult. This is pretty easy. Like, come on, kids. Like, kid after kid, teenager after teenager. I was coaxing them. I was encouraging them. I was challenging them, exhorting them. Whatever you want to say, like, climb up that pole, get on top of that pole, and make that jump. Take that leap of faith. And so one after another, they did it. And then we would get a few that would get to the top, and they would just, like, start crying. And I would tell them to suck it up, you big baby. Just get up there and do it. I was young in my youth. I didn't have a whole lot of grace and a whole lot of patience. And so I forced some kids to probably do it against their will and they cried. But at the end of it, I think they were glad that they did. And I thought to myself the whole time, what's the big deal? It's just climbing up this pole. You're roped in, you're harnessed. You're not going to die if you fall. And then I climbed up the pole. (laughs) I get to the top of the pole and I'm on the very last peg uh, there's two pegs, and I'm, I'm kind of doing this with the, with the telephone pole, and I realize, 
Oh, this is the really hard part. I had to climb from that last peg to the very top of this telephone pole. And what I didn't realize on the ground is that 30 feet up in the air, this telephone pole was doing this, just swaying with the trees back in the wind. And I realized, this is terrifying. It absolutely mortified me. And I got to be honest, the only thing I wanted to do was climb right back down. But I had pushed all of these teenagers to take the challenge and I couldn't quit. But everything in me was wavering. Everything in me wanted to quit in that moment, but I just couldn't. And what I realized in that moment is that on the precipice of the edge is where we often waver the most. The precipice of the unknown is where we waver. And when we cower, we often want to quit. But the community of believers is where strength is found to hold fast to our confession of hope without wavering. As I think about those that I know over the years that have walked away from their faith, oftentimes as I reflect on their situations and their scenarios, what I realize is the reason they may have walked away is because they had no other person in their life encouraging them to go on. They had no community. They had no spiritual fellowship. They didn't have that other person to say to them, don't let go. Even though you're wavering right now, hold on tight. I'm right here beside you. I'm right here holding on with you. They find themselves in isolation, and isolation is easy. When you're in isolation, it's easy to faint in the face of difficulty. I think I read this quote a few months ago, but I think it's powerful enough to remind us. I read this in a book months and months ago. It says this, lone wolves can survive in isolation, but lone sheep cannot. Folks, we need a community around us to give us strength and to give us courage. We need each other. Community found in a church does a couple of things for your subpoints. Number one, it gives you a backbone. It gives you courage when you're weak. It gives you strength when you want to quit. I think about the story of Elijah. He had just defeated the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He had 450 prophets executed. And he had this, this mountaintop moment and he had just did something really significant for the nation of Israel. He had just done something significant for God. He comes off that mountain and immediately he does the one thing he probably shouldn't have done. He goes to a cave in isolation. And within 24 hours, he's discouraged. And he thinks, I'm the only one that's left. And it wasn't until God reveals to him in 1 Kings chapter 19 that he had preserved a remnant of 7,000 faithful followers that Elijah realized, oh, I'm not alone. Like God isn't going to let me die. He isn't going to let me suffer. Elijah had lost his backbone. He had no spine at that point because he was in isolation. He didn't have community of other believers with him. But when he had community, he was strong. He found courage. He found a spine when he was spineless. Number two, under that subpoint, community proves God's promises. Community proves God's promises. Look back to the Gospel of Mark. Um, Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. These are the words of Jesus saying this, Truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my name's sake. And for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now, and this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. 
Man, community proves God's promises. There is, there is eternal reward for the believer because of the faithful promises of Jesus Christ. Because of God's promises, no matter what you suffer through, no matter what you sacrifice, no matter what you surrender, no matter what is taken from you, no matter what you have to endure, whether it's the loss of, of a home or a brother or sisters or mother or father or children or lands, or basically anything that is of high value to you. When you have Christ, when you have community, even though you lose those things, there is a reminder that God is faithful and there is an eternal reward that awaits us. So when you lose a job, when you receive that diagnosis, when you go through a difficult season, when you're discouraged and there's anxiety, when you lose a loved one, a parent or a spouse, A community called the church, they step in and they provide and they protect and they pray for you. When Christians stand shoulder to shoulder with one another against the world, I mean, it proves that God is faithful to keep his promises to his children. Number three, and lastly, through community. When we give everything we've got to community, we help each other grow in love and good works. We help each other grow in love and good works. Verses 24 and 25 says this of Hebrews chapter 10. And let us consider, this is the third let us. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You realize that one of the greatest blessings, one of the greatest benefits of being connected to a church body, of belonging to a faith family is actually not what you receive. It's what you can give. Scripture tells us to consider one another. The blessing of belonging to a church is that God can use you to minister to other people. That phrase that we just read, stir up one another, to stir up, that comes from the Greek word, I'm going to read it to you here, paroxysmos. That's the Greek word for stir up. It means to incite. It means to provoke. It means to bug someone. It means to pester them. You know, I I think we're all called to be provokers and inciters. And I think when we think about those terms, it's always in a negative context, right? Like you think of someone that's inciting something, you think of those January Sixers that rush the Capitol building, right? And they just provoke riot. They incite riot and chaos and mayhem. And so there's usually a negative context that comes with those words to incite or to provoke. But Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, it's using these words in a very positive form, in a, in a, in a very positive manner. Have you ever had someone provoke you to godliness? Have you ever had someone agitate you to the point where you have to deal with sin in your life? Have you ever had someone incite you to become more than you ever thought you could be? Have you ever had someone who bugged you to the point where you wanted to follow Jesus Christ even more faithfully than you already do? I think every one of us, we need a provocateur in our lives Someone who isn't afraid to agitate us and to stir us up to good works. In fact, right now in this moment, just to keep you kind of engaged, turn to the person next to you and say, you agitate me. Go ahead and do that. You agitate me. You find agitators. Where do you find them? You find them in the church. We agitate one another. We provoke one another. We incite one another. And the church stirs us up in a couple of different ways. And here's your sub points. Community. 
Community challenges you for service. It stirs you up. It challenges you for service. When you look at the lives of other Christians and see how they serve and how they serve faithfully and how they love the Lord, man, hopefully that inspires you to say, I want to live my life like them. I want to follow their example. I want to follow after their model. You know, I have some people in this church that really bug me in this very room. I have some people that bug me. I have some people that agitate me, that provoke me. You want to know who they are? Oh, I'm going to name names, right? Jim Herring. Jim Herring incites me. He provokes me. You know why? Because every Sunday I shake his hand. I have never met anybody with more joy of the Lord in his life than he has. When I encounter him, I think to myself, when I'm in my 60s, when I'm, when I'm his age, man, I hope I have that much joy. I want to serve the Lord faithfully like Jim does. He incites me to godliness in a very positive way. You want to know who else provokes me? She's not in here right now. She walked out. Man, she's out in the lobby. I see her. I see her watching me. K-Dome incites me. She provokes me. You want to know how? She has the audacity to text me almost every Sunday after I preach and say, Pastor, Bob and I both agree that was an amazing sermon. And you know what that makes me do? It makes me smile. It makes me feel like, man, I'm making a difference and I want to preach even better and harder the next time. I want to be more faithful as a minister of the gospel because of her words of encouragement. It incites me. It provokes me. I think about Dave Reinhardt up in the crow's nest up there. Many of you know Dave, but you probably don't even notice him most Sundays because he's here before you are. He's up there making sure that we have sound. He's making sure that we have video when we need it. He serves the Lord faithfully, and he does it almost unaware. And he doesn't even care if he gets recognition. I see him serving behind the scenes, and I say to myself, even if I didn't have a pulpit, I want to serve like Dave does. You know who else I think about? I think about Mark Brunn. That guy is a gift to this church. Don't you ever take for granted Mark's ministry. He has been a friend to many of you for years and years, if not decades. He steps in to preach when I need someone to fill the pulpit. He'll stand up here and lead in worship, even though he probably would tell you he doesn't have the most amazing voice, but he just wants to serve. He wants to be used and use his gifts to the best of his ability. He preaches funerals. He encourages, he's always out there early shaking people's hands. He even created this document for me a year ago. I said, Mark, I know you know everybody in this service and I'm still trying to learn names. Would you create a document for me? So he creates this document with everybody's name and pictures and he even has a description about some of you, most of which I won't read. Um, That might be private, but he does this because he wants to minister. And I tell myself, I want to be like Mark when I grow up. Man, he incites me. He provokes me to be more like Christ. Understand, Christian, that when you get involved, when you get off the sidelines and you serve, you might just be the person that God wants to use to provoke someone else, to motivate them. They may look at you and say, I want to be like her. I want to be more like Jesus like I see in her or him. Man, and we can't do that from the sidelines. We've got to get involved. We've got to be 
Um, we've got to be uh, immersed in the body of Christ. We've got to be serving. We've got to be using the gifts that God has given us. Placing yourself in the body of Christ is a great way of finding the motivation for greater love and for greater ministry. And finally, community encourages you for future, for the future. Community encourages you for the future. The second half of verse 25 says, uh, actually, I'll just read the whole verse in Hebrews chapter 10. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Folks, that day is drawing near. And while I don't have a lot of hope for our world, I have a lot of hope for eternity. And I have a lot of hope because of each and every one of you that I rub shoulders with and I cross paths with. You bless me. You encourage me. Your faithfulness to this body makes a difference. Folks, you need this church in more ways than you know. But also know this. This church needs you in more ways than you know. So let's give it everything we've got. Let's do whatever it takes to live out and to become the church that Jesus prayed that we would become. Heavenly Father.